Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited about tonight. I'm Terry Sultan. I'm the director here at the parish, for those of you who I may not have met before, but I think I've met everybody. This is a really, really important night for us. We're very excited about everything that's happening at the museum, but at this moment, we're really celebrating an exhibition that I've been working on for the last 20 years. It finally reached its fruition. I could not be more thrilled to introduce you all to Thomas Joshua Cooper and his work, which I first saw 20 years ago and have tried many times to meet him, get some ideas about how to work together, and finally um, it came to pass largely because of the uh, facilitation and help of my friend and colleague Christy Davis from the Lannan Foundation who helped us um, get together and grow this exhibition. It's just a thrill to have all of this work here for everyone to see right now, and I'm really grateful for all of you joining us uh, tonight for the celebration and the talk. So Tom Thomas and I are going to chat, so enjoy. Thank you. So, Thomas. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> 20 years in the making, but something you said to me in the, uh, in the galleries the other day really stuck with me when we were talking about process and how artists make the decisions they make and do what they do. And you said almost to the day 50 years ago, you made a kind of a decision for yourself in a manifesto about how you were going to proceed as an artist from that day forward. Can you tell us what that was? Well, you've got a good memory. It's scary. Fifty years, one month, and three days ago, I, April Fool's Day, as it turns out, seems appropriate as I look back, I made a decision on April Fool's Day in 1969 that I would try and work as an artist. I would only ever work outdoors. I would work with my very old, strange, now great friend, camera, uh, and that I would only ever make one negative in one site in each place that I ever worked, so all my pictures are unique. And I would then try to devote myself to this. It was a vow. I've only ever made three, and I've never broken either any of them. Uh, the second one was my wedding vow, so that's the biggie. Um, um, and I thought, okay, in doing that kind of ceremonial thing, I'll set myself up to see whether I can do this or fail. Failure is always a possibility, but it's not an option. So from that day until now, I've tried every single day in some way or another to make pictures with the camera or to sight pictures with my eyes and to work outdoors and do that singularly with as much purpose and, and seriousness as possible, never ever thinking that there will be an end. So this is to the absolute, absolute capacity of my abilities, which are what my vows are about. Do this and do it forever and never stop and never look back. You also said that... Um... Uh, that's a pretty good manifesto. You're very sweet. I'm probably unworthy of that. No, I don't think so. The other thing that you said about your process that I always found true and guiding principle is the fact that you, you think in terms of projects 
not one-offs. No, and you don't think of works as series, but sequences. Yeah, I, it's peculiar for me, and if it aggravates anybody in the audience, I apologize. Serial things interest me, but they add up very linearly. One plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one. And the add the sum of the addition never exceeds either emotionally or if in my uh, thoughts any other way, physically, the sum of the parts. They're linear. Sequential working, thinking of it as I do as a poetic process in almost stanza form, uh, you build lines, pictures that interrelate relate one to another in the hopes that they actually begin to add up finally through the process of and the time of the process of looking to something more than the sum of the parts. So whatever the parts are, however important they are, that's not the purpose of the work. It's what happens when the sum of the parts is concluded and a viewer, a maker, comes away hopefully having learned something or discovered something or maybe nothing happens but figured something out in a way that's less linear. Uh, and that's really important to me. I, I only work on projects, and that seems useful. I try and, and I only ever work outdoors, so when I was offered the opportunity to work here, that sort of concluded a whole lot of dreaming about a place that I thought I'd never get to, because for me it was really hard to get to, which is the top part of Long Island, your area the Hamptons, and with a place called Montauk Point that on the most detailed maps is called Montauk the End. <laughs> That's like dangling something really sweet in front of me. I think, wow. I'm fascinated by edges. I've spent a lifetime chasing them metaphorically and physically, and something that designated itself as perhaps an an, as opposed to the an ultimate edge. I thought, well, I'm fished. I'm coming. Here we go. And then Terry and my friends at the Lannans, Christy Davis, made it possible. And I thought, wow. It's, I've always thought that dreaming, which is literal and something more for me, if you dream hard enough, and it's not wistful bullshit, it's just if you, it's a way of thinking for me. If you dream hard enough, then sometimes the dreaming can be realized. And dreaming to come here I spent an awfully long time doing and was finally enabled through this project. And, and that's how I got him after 20 years, is by dangling the end <laughs> in front of his face. <laughs> it worked. Um, you have often described yourself as an expeditionary yep. artist, and, uh, and I could put you then in the category with other expeditionary artists like Hamish Fulton, for example, and Richard Long, both of whom are, you know, sort of sculptor, performance artists. Talk a little bit about the idea or the notion of an expeditionary artist and what that means to you. With reference to those two specific guys and a friend of mine and his wife and the family, Chris and Nancy Cyberling, God, it's amazing to meet somebody I haven't seen in so long and they're here. I had the opportunity after graduate school to go to England by accident because my master teacher had a job situation going and he asked his six favorite students and they all said no thank you and I was the last on the list <laughs> and uh, this is actually true sad but I leapt at it like salmon and ended up in England in part because I was desperate to do something and thought 
that the ambience that allowed a project like Hamish Fulton's and Richard Long's, they're very different, but to work outdoors, to make pictures with text that had a kind of a, both a physical allure and a lyrical sort of capacity to them, I thought, well, in that circumstance and in that context, I could work in that part of the world and be happy ever after. They were really seriously wonderful, not influences at all, but inspirations. I reject categorically in influence. It's, it's a fascist type thing in my opinion, but inspiration's a gift and a joy, and I became friendly with Hamish and a colleague of Richard's, and it was just nice to feel like, here's two people that blazed a trail about making things outdoors that makes so much sense to me, well, I do nothing like it whatsoever, that I feel compatible. And they didn't tell me to off, which they could have very easily, uh, being very junior, and uh, it was just wonderful. So I've, I found an ambient working circumstance led by two people that have maintained their practices and have become beacons. And I thought, in this working era, working outdoors is, in any medium, is strangely unfashionable. And when I left America, um, it was really almost utterly unfashionable. And that is a strange thing if that's what you want to do, and you either give up or you persevere. There was no choice and no possibility of giving up. So I exiled myself to the place that seemed the most likely that I could work, and more particularly that I could still speak the language, which was really important. <laughs> It's worth pointing out that what, he's, what, what Thomas is referring to is the fact that, although he's born and raised in the United States, has for the last 30 years lived in Glasgow, Scotland, where he's the head of the photography fine arts department at the Glasgow School. Speaking of Americans and expeditionary uh, artists, however, uh, somebody, two other artists that you and I have spoken about fairly extensively are Carlton Watkins and... Um, well, Timothy, Timothy O'Sullivan. Joe Sullivan, uh, one angel and possibly one devil. Um, <laughs> and they both sit on the shoulders. It took a while to become comfortable with the idea that, that I, you know, you style yourself. I'm an artist. I don't call myself a photographer. I like photographs. I make photographs, but I work in a community of picture makers and object makers. And that's where I feel both most comfortable and most clear. But in the 19th century, before too much critical craziness went on, there were a couple of American people, for my money, particularly Timothy O'Sullivan, this guy that worked, he was one of uh, uh, the Civil War photographers. Uh, I just blanked on the guy's name that ran the, the whole show making the Civil War photographs, but he and a Scotsman uh, named Alexander Gardner O'Sullivan came from Ireland, Gardner came from Scotland, they both ended up in America and became the primary Civil War photographers, or the most well-known. And then latterly, after the war, a uh, couple years of rest and recuperation, Battlefront does your head in, by the way, O'Sullivan went out into the, the landscape of the 40th parallel and he looked and photographed things in a way that, by my money, uh, nobody ever equaled until about the middle 1870s when Cezanne began to explore 
Mont Saint Victoire in the way that he did, and they're comparable in every way in terms of invention, removal of everything that is unnecessary, and allowing the most necessary things to only be linear, linear gesture. And I'm referring to drawings, Cezanne's drawings particularly. Well, O'Sullivan was out there in deserts and places making pictures that almost described nothing. And I thought, ah, that's for me. And Watkins, on the other hand, you know, he's in California. Everything's lovely. He couldn't miss. But what was interesting is that for me, some of his great pictures, he went north to Oregon and photographed some of the very difficult areas along the Columbia River where his very pictorial style changed into being challenged by the outdoors to do something he couldn't predict before he walked out into the outdoors. And that was what was exciting about O'Sullivan. He had to look at the place and react to it instead of expect it to offer up to him something that he thought might be there. He was a picture maker. And early on, God, that's, that's, a, that's a discovery in itself. So when I understood that, they became directional lights for me. Uh, it should be said immediately that I'm interested in history and refuse to believe that old things have no value simply because they are perhaps notionally out of time. Uh, it is odd to believe that it's possible that people think that things can be both out of time and out of place. That usually refers to me. Um, uh, but I find myself comforted by the time, both the timeliness and the timelessness of people who study time within their work as it relates to place. And it's had a tremendous impact on the way I think about making. The other thing that you mentioned to me that, uh, that I found really provocative and interesting was when we were talking about Watkins and O'Sullivan, you were talking about the exploration of the West and how you know, there is a, a, a romanticism about the Western exploration. And one of the reasons that you were so excited about your project uh, on the East Coast, going down the Hudson River and to Long Island, was because of the real romanticism and transcendence that was associated with the East, especially the Hudson River School. So I would ask you just to bring the microphone a little closer to your mouth. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm so nervous. You can see I shake naturally at 250 of a second these days anyway, so Jesus Christ, the thing's going like this, and I'm trying to hold on to it, so holding on low, it makes it easier to hold. Let's, and I, that seems slightly less visible that I'm shaking all over the place. I'd be a good rocker if I could stop. Don't be nervous, you're among friends. <laughs> that makes me more nervous. <laughs> I, um, you screw up amongst friends, you never recover. Um, it's kind of a weird thing. I begin to think about Montauk, the end, about the top of Long Island, and geography, historical geography in particular, but geography, not physical, but cultural geography in general, really, really interests me. And, I started thinking, how do people get to a place? Well, the, the strange diagonal island that Long Island is sticks out pretty far at the bottom of a whole lot of interesting stuff. Uh, one of the bottom points that is interesting about it is the Hudson River concludes at the bottom of Long Island. And that really, that really interested me because 
The Hudson River provides for me historically a whole lot of references that are of deep interest to me, Native American references, but to move to Terry's suggestion, the beginning of American landscape painting happened in the studios around and at Storm King Mountain. And although one can tire of Bierstadt and Cole and all those old boys, you know, they did some pretty interesting stuff. The paintings are a little overdramatic. I speak as a confessed romanticist. Uh, I have no capacity to relate to the sublime, so maybe I'm not a real romanticist, but I, I feel it. But when you go to this place, as I did, to Storm King Mountain, even the name, Jesus Christ, you got it. Well, names call. So a place called Storm King or Montauk the End. I had to go there. And when I finally got there, there was a rising river mist off the Hudson. I'm standing on the cliff edge of Storm King, which is sometimes awkward to get to. Thing, everything that's dear to me, everything that is valuable about a kind of making in the outdoor world, in the American cultural consciousness, sometimes suffered for him, and sometimes not so interesting, began here. Thank you. I wanted to make something that said just that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And everything was gray and luminous, and light was glowing within and underneath the fog, and the fog was rising off the river. And the last bit of narrow-gauge railway... It's fantastic. I've actually put somebody to sleep. They dropped their glass. Uh, uh, it, it's a Zen thing. I'm good at that. Ding, ding, ding. Um, the last bit of 19th-century narrow-gauge railway is on the edge, the inward edge of Storm King. And I thought, okay, I never keep man-made things in my pictures. There are two pictures which dis disagree with that in the show, but I had to have that. I'm looking downstream towards Manhattan and towards the bottom of Long Island, and then actually, inevitably, the travel that is required by curiosity, by commerce, by economics, by the need to move from one good place to a better place, which is everything that this whole place is about, to get to Long Island, and then to find a point in Long Island called Conscience Point. You guys made this place for me. And then to find out, as I am tremendously interested in where and what was the conscience about, a place where eight adults and several children could migrate from the oppression of Pilgrim, southeast Massachusetts, of, of the Puritan world, which was too harsh and too unsupportive, and they wanted to find better life here. Ah, oh, yes, the obvious thought that maybe there's a metaphor here for our time, struck me that, okay, in this most beautiful of areas, perhaps it's use, useful to remind ourselves that everybody needs to find some place where they belong, to find refuge, to find a place that feels right, hopefully a place that feels good, and hopefully a place that will support them. And if people don't want you to do that, then what are you going to do? Say, okay, I won't do that. You don't want me to do that. Or you say, I need to do this. I need to find some place, perhaps any place. But if that any place happens to be here, which is where I was, and you get here, those early, early pilgrims, then um, 
early refugees and they name a place Conscience Point, then for me, from that point on, it reverberates throughout the entirety of the place. And I was hooked like an old fish and I dangled just long enough to say, I surrender, I will work here and do the best I can to, to acknowledge, recall and respect this idea of migration of immigration, of being a refugee, and then what happens when refugees finally settle and become happy? They become prosperous, and the land changes, and all, all is better. So that's what happened to me. <laughs> you talk a lot about place, and I know that the places that you choose to make pictures have deep meaning. But then there's also a notion of this idea of place as no place. Yeah. Because 99% of your pictures don't have horizon lines, and 99% of those pictures don't have any place markers. Boy, that's nice. I'm glad you said that, and I thank you. I'm not interested in making pictures of places that look like, that describe how a place looks like. Why would I do that? Why would anybody be interested in doing that? This makes no sense to me. I, if people disagree, that's fine. I'm wrong, you're right. But for me, for me, the point is not to say, this is that, in looking at one of my pictures. That never made any sense. I'm interested in picture making rather than describing objects. And through the process of picture making and acknowledging what Terry says, the minute you have a horizon in something, anything, any horizontal object that looks like a horizon in any medium, the eye goes to the horizon mark and very shortly thereafter up as opposed to down, uh, depending on where the location of the mark of the horizon is in the frame of the view, and you're out of the picture. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you make a picture that makes it people easy for people to look at it and walk out of it? So I refuse traditional figure ground location mechanisms in my work. There are a few horizons that seem important. Two of them are in the exhibition of great importance to me. Um, but right, 99, my aim perhaps directly as a result of being gobsmacked early on by the Nabi, Vuillard and Bonard is to make interiors. I want to make pictures that don't allow easy escape if you bother to look at them. So I locate the edges of things. It's relatively simple with my old camera and simply allow the center to take care of itself. But because there's no notional top or bottom, there are only edges, four edges, four sides, then with any luck at all, it takes a while if you choose to look at the damn things, and sometimes it's easy not to, uh, to actually get either entrapped or entangled or maybe just curious enough to look around. So it's hard to get out of an interior space without an invitation. And I make all of my pictures as hard invitationally to get out of as possible so that if you take the trouble to look, you might linger for a little bit. 
Well, and it takes a long time to make these pictures. And when you, when you find a location where you want to be, you often have to wait around for the light to be the yeah. right light. Uh, if you're working on the water, you wait for the tide to either go out or come in. And so there's, it's expeditionary, but it's also meditative because sometimes you're just standing there. Well, that's actually true. And going, just a remark on the expedition, I realize that my interest lies in two fields of practice, what I call the near field and the far field, with reference to a poet who knocked me out named Theodore Rethke in his last book. But the far field is genuinely really, really far and often unpopulated and incredibly difficult to work in. And the near field is domestic, ruralized, and often nearly or fully pop populated. And with, within those fields, opportunities occur differently. Uh, experiences occur varietally. And uh, thus, the idea of expedition from one field to another, from one locale to another, occurs. And I've just talked so much, I actually lost the point of your question. Can you, <laughs> can you remind me? I, I did that on purpose. Um, no, we're ta I was talking about the, uh, the, the, the kind of the temporal difference between the expedition and the meditation. Well, there are, uh, I'm one of those people that are violently aggravated by the belief that people think that photographs uh, are understandable by looking at the objects and s assuming the object of a photograph is the subject. It just bothers me. So, and in my case, it's not the case. So what interests me is weather wind, uh, types of wind. I study the Beaufort scale, which is sad, actually. Um, uh, and um, I, I'm really interested in it. How wind works when it's subterranean. And by that, I mean when topography, for instance, underwater changes with wind the way water works underwater over the topography under it, as well as on top of the water, and fishermen usually know more about this than anybody else, uh, than the first 18 inches between, of space between air and water, the wind does something else, and then up and up and up. And so I watch it. Weirdly, I watch wind, which is kind of hard to see most of the time, uh, but the effect is obvious. So I've learned how to count movement of natural objects, movement obviously of leaves, pretty easy and it's kind of pleasant. Movement of grass, easier still, but also movement of water in terms of how the, the marks of the trails of foam, the trails of current water, the trails of breaking waves, indeed the same goes for how wind works on foliage above ground that's not sea-based. So wind is an absolute necessity. Then time of day, I really prefer the later times of day I like the luminous quality of late afternoon and early evening. It's tangible to me. And I hope, above all, that there's some kind of deep sense of physicality in my pictures. But I learned by necessity to work through the day. I started to work through 24 hours of the day just because I got excited. Can I make pictures in extreme darkness? Uh, where I live, there's not a hell of a lot of extreme brightness. So I went to places, jungle places, where there was really serious extreme brightness. Equatorial places, to see if I could work with white light and yellow light 
and gray light and blue-gray light and yellow-blue light and yellow-red light and yellow-orange light and then white light and then no light. And how did that impact on this strange thing that I wanted to do, which would was, it's really simple, combine light and weather, wind or no wind, rain or no rain, snow or no snow, dryness or wetness, because light contains dryness and wetness, and translate that into the way the look of the pictures could, could suggest something happening on the surface of the stuff, the surface of the water, the surface of the branches, the surface of the grass, the surface of the rocks. So that the outdoor stuff was the intermediary for the things I was interested in, which are essentially emotional. I just wanted to find ways to use outdoor stuff to talk about emotional responses to place and use enough time, which if you were working with daylight and you want to work through periods of days in daylight, you just have to stay put. There's a two-part work here of incoming and outgoing tide from the same spot. I had to make a decision after I decided to do it. Did I want to wait six hours for the tide to withdraw from the same place uh, or not? And I did. I made the wait, and then I made the picture. And the time difference made me happy. In the time of the making, an acquaintanceship occurs. And it's only through acquaintanceship that I feel able to establish some kind of ability to make one thing at one moment ever. That's it. No other, no seconds, no thirds, no duplicates, no extras, no nothing. One thing. But I wait for a moment, sometimes obvious, sometimes stupid, sometimes kind of funny, sometimes clumsy, always where I feel I'm allowed acquaintanceship. And in that also, refuge occurs. And refuge is also a point, a place, and a time of belonging. And that's what I'm looking for. Sometimes I get lucky. I'm a devotee of the New Yorker. Sad bastard syndrome, it has to be said. I read it every week by subscription from Glasgow. And I have a cartoon on my studio door. I told the docents this, forgive me. Uh, there's this guy selling hot dogs. And um, he's talking to somebody who wants one of his hot dogs. And he's really enthusiastic. And he says, you know, this is my studio. This is where I make my hot dogs. And that was the cartoon. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, wow, I get it. And I realized that I work every day. I practice every day with, with or without the camera. And the deal is to make my hot dogs every day. Sometimes I make really good hot dogs. Sometimes they're stupid. No one ever sees those. I, they're destroyed. Sometimes they're just sort of OK. Here's where I make my hot dogs. And it's a great place to make hot dogs, you know? Outdoors is the place to make hot dogs. <laughs> There's absolutely no way I can top that finish. So I'm not even going to try. Thank you so very, very much.